Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's November 30th, 2018. I'm Charlie Sykes. And because it is Friday, we're joined uh, by Gabby Orr from Politico. On, a, on Fridays, we do a cross-platform we do a, a, a cross-platform uh, podcast. And uh, Gabby is a White House reporter, and uh, you're a uh, longtime Trumpologist, aren't you, Gabby? I've been covering him since the day he announced his campaign. <laughs> well, um, yeah, it's uh, we're going to get into that. Look, there's a lot of things we could talk about, including the G20 summit. But let's uh, talk about uh, the the fallout from uh, the the uh, the Michael Cohen plea yesterday. And you have a piece uh, with uh, two of your your colleagues uh, in in Politico. The perfect witness, Democrats want Cohen to testify on the Hill, Trump's most militant loyalist. And you have this dazzling suggestion in the piece that a Cohen redo at the Capitol would be a spectacle that could rival the Watergate hearings. The image of Trump's longtime personal attorney and political fixer describing crimes connected to the president would be an all-consuming Washington event and a chance for the Democratic House majority to flex its newfound investigative powers. And you know, it, it occurred to me that the Trump era has always been about uh, Donald Trump dominating the narrative using television, but this would be this would be the reality TV show of 2019, wouldn't it? It would. It's it's almost like everything that President Trump has utilized for the last you know year and a half in office to sort of set his agenda and keep his message going. Um, would be turned on him. All of those tactics would be used against him. And Democrats with uh, the power to uh, investigate the relationship between the president and Russia and, and all of these other issues that they've promised to probe when they take power in January, um, Michael Cohen is really a valuable asset. If they bring him in, if they bring him on to Capitol Hill to testify in a number of these um, investigations, you know, all they have to do is open one of these hearings up to the public, and it could be an unrivaled spectacle. Okay, you're a longtime Trump uh, observer. Initially, when Trump apparently was informed that this was going to happen, they kind of shrugged it off. Okay, Michael Cohen is a uh, uh, Michael Cohen's a liar. Uh, the, the president uh, dismissed it. You know, called him weak yesterday as he as he headed off to the G20 summit. But he's back tweeting this morning that he just lightly, lightly looked at uh, at that at that Trump Tower. So, give me your sense of how you know how Trump is reacting to the developments of the last 48 hours right now, because he's there on the national stage in a remarkably, I guess, weakened state, given what's happening back home. Right. And and we've sort of seen his team um, distance Trump from Cohen in the last 48 hours beyond what they've already tried to do, which is depict Cohen as this sort of slimy character who... Um, is a BS artist and is totally misleading, um, not just Mueller, but, you know, the the members of Congress who he testified um, before. But President Trump is also saying, and, and this is through a statement from his um, outside counsel, Rudy Giuliani, yesterday, uh, that this is Mueller deliberately trying to sabotage his trip down to G20, just like he did um, ahead of the president's summit with Vladimir Putin in Helsinki. They drew a direct comparison to Helsinki. They said that this is 
Um, you know, similar to how there was the announcement of, if I recall correctly, 60-something indictments um, shortly before President Trump took off to to head to that summit with Putin. Um, here's Mueller now announcing this uh, plea bargain with Michael Cohen, you know, hours before Trump was set to take take off for Argentina for the G20 summit. So that seems to be the, the White House message on this. Um, they don't think it's a problem. We had a great story out yesterday that sort of took a look at all of the witnesses who have testified um, both in front of either House and Senate committees or one of the um, congressional committees who are investigating um, the president's ties to Russia um, and also have spoken to Mueller to, to see if they're concerned at all that the special counsel is now going to be reviewing their testimony to see if there are any discrepancies. And and most everyone in Trump world who's been entangled in this investigation have said that they don't really have concerns, that it's extremely difficult to prove an intentional um, lie under oath, and that uh, this was just a one-off case because Cohen is such a shady figure. Okay, so is do you think, though, that, that their confidence is well-placed, or or is that naive? Is it naive on their on their part? Because, you know, a lot of them have voluminous testimonies somewhere in Devin Nunes's basement. <laughs> it's, it's hard to say because, you know, on the one hand, none of them are going to admit to a reporter, oh, I may have yeah. misled Congress or I may have um, deliberately lied under oath. Um, so obviously they're going to. Uh, claim that they're very confident in their testimony, that there's no daylight between what they told congressional investigators and what they told Mueller's team. Um, But this is an investigation that has really focused on um, details and, you know, whether that's the timing of a meeting, the day of a meeting, every single correspondence linked to um, something, emails, text messages, um, all of these sort of seemingly innocuous details could get somebody in trouble if there is um, a small discrepancy between what they told congressional investigators, what they told Mueller, and that it can be proved that they intentionally um, said something that was inaccurate or not true. Yeah, no, every time we talk about this, I always want to stress all the things we do not know. We don't know. uh, (laughs) So many things. There are so many things that we don't know, and a lot of it is speculation. You know, two questions seem to be hanging out there. Number one, you know, did um, Mueller clear this with with the acting attorney general, or did he just inform him, is the acting attorney general actually overseeing this? And is it just a coincidence that this happened, uh, number one, right after uh, the president submitted his written answers to the special counsel and the Manafort plea deal broke up. So I mean, we don't know for sure any of those questions. Do, do you have any sense what, what Matthew Whitaker's role was in any of this? I, I don't know um, how involved DOJ was in this. I know that um, the White House got at least a 12-hour heads up that this was coming down the pipeline. Um, but that was just because somebody on President Trump's outside legal team had heard it um, through, you know, a conversation that they were having. So I, I assume that Whitaker was, you know, in some capacity aware of, of this. Um, I just don't yeah. know how and, and I don't want to speculate. <laughs> well, the, the the initial reports were that that the Trump folks are were not that worried about it. And they, they at least that's their public posture. <laughs> 
But it does, and I, I feel like we've said this before, this does feel like we're getting closer to an end game. And the, the the banner story in the Washington Post, or at least online, is you know, Trump emerges as a central subject of the Mueller probe. Uh, let me just read you the two first par- the, the first two paragraphs. In two major developments this week, President Trump has been labeled in the parlance in the parlance of criminal investigations as a major subject of interest, complete with an opaque legal code name, individual one. New evidence from two separate fronts of special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation cast fresh doubts on Trump's version of key events involving Russia, signaling potential political and legal peril for the president. Investigators have now publicly cast Trump as a central figure of their probe into whether Trump's campaign conspired with the Russian government during the 2016 campaign. And and so that, that that's the way they, they, they framed it. And also... It is the fact that we are now beginning to connect the dots between Trump's business dealings, the money, following the money trail, and other things. And, you know, when we also have the stories, you know, Jerome Corsi is out there. We have Roger Stone, um, all of the things that are that are bubbling out there. And we haven't yet, you know, the the, you know, connecting all of the dots. But that's still to come, isn't it? And and we're starting to see the the frame of all of this, you know, that the president was engaged in a hopeful business deal with the Russians as he was running for president and as he was praising Vladimir Putin. So despite the public expressions of, of confidence, this is this has got to be very worrying for them. Yeah, and I think the the details that came out yesterday with this um, business deal, potential business deal with Russia, um, are sort of the most substantive. Um, it, it, it sort of does show that something's taking shape in this investigation, and it makes you wonder if you know this is the reason why President Trump was making all of these praiseworthy comments of, of Vladimir Putin during um, his presidential campaign without really any. Um, other clear motivation um, for doing so uh, when, you know, the rest of the world and most Republicans would say that Putin is not um, an upstanding character. We shouldn't be praising him in any way. Um, I, I think that, you know, behind the scenes, the president, he's he's very frustrated. We hear from White House team. White House officials all the time that he just wants this investigation to come to an end. He genuinely means it when he feels like this is a witch hunt, that people have been treated unfairly. Um, but one of the things that's really been sort of casting a shadow over the White House right now is the fate of Don Donald Trump Jr., the president's eldest son. There's, you know, several sealed indictments as part of this investigation. We don't know who they involve. They could very well involve Donald Trump Jr. They, they might not. But um, just the fact that that's a possibility has to leave the president extremely concerned, not just about the impact of this on his legacy, on his presidency, but also on his family and those close to him. And so I think that's one of the reasons why we've sort of seen these um, tweets reemerge about the the investigation in recent days. He took about a two-month hiatus from tweeting about the Russia investigation during the midterms, but um, and boy, has he returned to criticizing Mueller and his team in the last week or so? Yeah, and what I, I haven't, I haven't, I didn't bring it up yet because I, I don't know who else has followed up on it. But uh, the BuzzFeed story was kind of a bombshell yesterday, suggesting that the, the one of the aspects of this deal was to give Vladimir Putin a fifty million dollar luxury condo in in this in this Trump Tower. And they they have Felix Sater, the very shady uh, swamp figure who 
keeps popping up in, in, in these in these Trump stories, basically saying that, yeah, he came up with that idea. We, of course, don't know. I mean, and again, the idea was you give Vladimir Putin $50 million um, condo, and then and then you get the oligarchs to pay $250 million to be in the same tower, um, sort of, you know, use Vladimir Putin as a as a loss leader. What we don't know, of course, is whether Trump knew about that deal. Um, but what what is your take on the BuzzFeed story? Because that that does seem to be have a dazzling detail that's really really disturbing. Yeah, you know it it's a bombshell report if you put a lot of trust in what Felix Sater is saying. Um, and I think it, it really has to be taken with a grain of salt because you know here's he's here saying that this is his idea. Um, he doesn't really say one way or another whether it was ever part of a. Um, you know, if, if it ever made it into the final pitch on this project, um, we don't know if Michael Cohen was actually involved in um, including this this idea to have some type of luxury penthouse for Vladimir Putin either, despite Sater saying that he was. Um, we just know that he was sort of the, the lead um, negotiator on this project. Um, so it, I'm just... I'm sort of reluctant always um, to, you know, take what Felix Sater is is telling reporters. <laughs> and, and, and yet, and I, I think I made this uh, this this point like three consecutive podcasts here. <laughs> the the cast of characters is so revealing, you know, that that you have this this cesspool in in the, in the in the inner circle that that you do have guys like Michael Cohen and Paul Manafort and Jerome Corsi and and Roger Stone and you know and fill in the Sam blanks Number, of Sam exactly Clovis. it goes on and on right exactly all of these misfit toys mm-hmm. that would never get anywhere close to even a you know a sea level presidential campaign much less to the president of the United States and so you have surrounded yourself with guys um, who's who's now defense? I was actually now I'm going to switch topic. You know, I do find the interesting de- defense that's emerging, and it's sort of the, the Roger Stone uh, defense, which is basically I am a mendacious windbag. I lie all the time, um, <laughs> so so therefore there, this is an easy explanation. It's not that you know people say, well, why would you lie about this or that? We lie all the time. We are so incompetent. We are such a bunch of idiots, and we are chronic liars. Therefore. That is our defense against charges of a conspiracy of any kind. And the thing about it is it's got a certain plausibility, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, and you, you know, it kind of does. That This is all just sort of accidental, that they may have stumbled upon um, some type of deal or arrangement that could have benefited the president during his 2016 campaign. Um, but I don't know that that's, you know, I'm, I'm not a lawyer. I just... But I, guess I, I don't it's not think a great that, that legal holds defense. up in court. No, <laughs> no, absolutely no. not. Yeah, that, that that may hold up on Fox News, but it's not going to necessarily hold right. up in in federal court. Well, <laughs> I want to talk about a couple of other things that are going on, obviously, uh, in, including uh, what's happening at the United Nations. But you had a very, very interesting story about that. Today's Daily Standard podcast is brought to you by Mrs. Fields Cookies. What is the worst holiday gift you've ever gotten? And I've confessed it was soap on a rope when I was 10 years old. Don't you wish you would have just gotten cookies instead? For more than 40 years, Mrs. Fields has made delicious treats like their signature chocolate chip cookies, their handcrafted frosted favorites, melt-in-your-mouth brownies, and Mrs. Fields' gourmet gift tins and baskets. 
Make the perfect present to surprise and delight anybody on your list this season. At Mrs. Fields, their cookies and the sweets are baked daily and always arrive fresh and flavorful. And ordering is easy. And then this is this is what's interesting about this. It makes this the perfect gift. You can they will ship your gift anywhere across the country. Plus, you can add a personal touch with a custom message, company logo, or family photo. Mrs. Fields even offers a 100%, 100% customer satisfaction guarantee. This year, send a fresh-baked gift that no one can resist. Look, right now, get 20% off your order when you go to mrsfields.com and enter promo code STANDARD. That's 20% off any gift at mrsfields.com, promo code STANDARD, mrsfields.com, promo code STANDARD. Okay, Gabby Orr. Um, you had a story about what's going on at the uh, at the United Nations, uh, still looking for a successor for Nikki Haley. Where are we at there? Oh, that's a good question. This has been going on for uh, almost two months now um, since Nikki Haley announced her year end resignation. And it doesn't seem like the White House has made any progress based on our reporting. They've had a number of candidates almost. Um, almost a dozen cycle through, um, names have been floated. People have been brought in to interview with the president, interview with his staff and Trump, from what we're hearing is no closer to settling on a nominee than he was, you know, a month ago when he told reporters, um, on November 5th, that he would announce his nominee for U for U S ambassador to the United nations by the end of the week. So this is just, um, sort of another position where the president, the white house had sort of blown through their, um, there are self-imposed deadlines. Um, one thing that, that's really interesting, um, I thought just this week, a new development on this front was that Heather Nauer, the, the state mm -hmm. department, the state department spokeswoman, excuse me, um, who had long been seen as sort of the front runner for this position. Um, she's kind of fizzled out and that has a lot to do with, um, not only her, questionable resume on foreign policy, um, but also some other issues that are sort of holding up her um, candidacy for this for this role. Hmm. Um, what about for attorney general? Uh, there's 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 even among Trump loyalists in the Senate, there seems to be some sense like, OK, you know, um, we're, we're going to cover for you on Matthew Whitaker. But but you need to go into the next year with an attorney general. Is there any movement at all in on that on that side? And and and, 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 is, and, is, and is, is frankly, is the Trump administration finding people who are willing to take that job given the circumstances? <laughs> That's the million dollar question. I think a lot of people who have been floated for this, um, including one who has already turned down the position, um, said that they did so because they just didn't want to be entangled in this investigation. They didn't want to have anything to do with um, the whole Mueller thing or be in a place where they're at the helm of the Justice, Justice Department when his report um, finally comes out. Uh, you know, I don't get the sense that there's any urgency behind filling this position. The president seems perfectly content with having Matthew Whitaker there um, in the interim. And I think he's going to take his time uh, interviewing candidates for this position. He's heading down to Mar-a-Lago after the G20 summit, where he'll spend, I think, three weeks there before New Year's. And a lot of these personnel decisions will probably be made while he's down there. I'm sure there will be plenty of people um, interviewing with him at Mar-a-Lago for a handful of cabinet positions, including attorney general.
The uh, Alex Acosta, the labor secretary, was apparently in the running, or at least vaguely in the running for this position. And of course, after this bombshell report from the Miami Herald, uh, you know, he is out. But considering the the de- the depths of, I mean, the this the seriousness of the allegation that he was part of this uh, this incredible sweetheart deal that that let uh, you know, the, I think people know the story by by now. Um, I raised the question, why is he still labor secretary? And, and uh, you know, I hadn't paid a lot of attention to this before, but Democrats tried to raise this during his confirmation hearings. Is, is, there, is there any concern that that could metastasize? Well, it, you know, they did try to raise the whole situation with Jeffrey Epstein during his um his confirmation hearing, but I don't. I don't think that they necessarily did so successfully because if they had, um, he probably would have faced a handful of. Uh, he he probably would have faced opposition from a handful of Republicans if they'd been familiar with the details of this, um, it, this investigation and the eventual plea deal, like we all are now. Um, I, you know, he's, from what I'm hearing, totally safe in his role. Um, at the Labor Department, yeah, okay. he, he, yeah, the president has no intention of removing him from that post, um, despite the bombshell Miami, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, report. I'm, I'm, I'm. I'm I'm looking at their uh, at the editorial from the Miami Herald. The editorial board uh, really slams him. Um, yeah. uh, when the white hot rage unleashed by the three part series subsides somewhat, this much is clear. Alexander Acosta, who was the federal prosecutor for the Southern District of Florida at the time, is not fit to serve as Attorney General of the United States. Acosta is said to be among those considered to replace recently fired Jeff Sessions, but. Anyone reading the Herald's investigations will see how Acosta's shameful actions deem him far from qualified to be the highest law enforcement officer in the land. Even as labor secretary, he is ethically compromised. And then it just goes on and just hammers him and hammers him. And that's just, uh, I have a sense that that's not necessarily going to go away. So given the blizzard of news that we are are having right now, including that the president, uh, with the president down the G20 summit, having to deal with some huge global issues, including whether or not we're going to escalate the trade war with uh, with China. Um, what stories should we be watching over the, the next week? Um, I'll, I asked some folks yesterday about this. I'll ask you, um, w- what about the prospects of of a deadlock or a shutdown over the wall? Oh, gosh. I mean, that's very likely at this point. The president is behind it. He said that he will support a shutdown if that means um, getting that $5 billion figure in border wall funding. Um, of course, there co- could be some arrangement that's being discussed right now where he would get that money, but it would sort of be um, doled out over a number of years. Um, so that could that could emerge as a compromise of some sort. I do think that's a big story to watch next week. Um, but also, as you mentioned, the the meeting between President Trump and President Xi of China, um, which I think takes place this evening or tomorrow. I, everything's such a blur right now. Um, yeah, no. <laughs> but it, you know, they're still ironing out the details of that meeting, how intimate it's going to be, whether. It, um, any of the president's aides um, on trade, national security will be there as well. Um, but there's a lot that hinges on that. I mean, President Trump and his administration have been working for months now to sort of reach some type of deal with China um, on trade relations and um, all of the problems that he's accused them of. And and China has so far been unwilling and resistant to that. And this sort of feels like the moment where we're going to have clarity on whether this is actually something that could be ironed out in the coming months um, before the end of his term, or if it's just totally hopeless and the 
trade war with China is going to be escalated further. Yeah, and uh, I mean, th- this would be a major escalation if they go ahead, if if the talks do break down. And so I'm not usually given to you know being sympathetic to the Trump White House, but you can certainly understand their frustration, you know, with all of this stuff breaking back home at the at the exact moment that the president does not want to appear weak when he is dealing with the president of of China. Uh, also, the question of whether or not he's going to meet with Vladimir Putin. Um, the president uh, announced that he was canceling. Well, maybe you can clarify where we're at on this. Uh, canceling the meeting, but now they're saying that they have scheduled an impromptu meeting, <laughs> which of course is not how impromptu is supposed to meet. So. <laughs> Is he is he going to meet with him or not? It seems up in the air at this point. Um, I I don't know if he's going to end up sitting down with Vladimir Putin. Um, The other thing to keep an eye on is whether he does take a meeting with the Saudi crown prince, who he said um, he doesn't plan to. That it wasn't added to his schedule. But of course, um, now that he's canceled this meeting with Vladimir Putin, um, there could be some time that opens up, and and that could fill that slot. So I think that that's certainly not out of the picture at this point. I think the, the classic, one of the classic quotes uh, from the last 24 hours was the uh, spokesperson for the Russian foreign ministry who uh, issued a statement, quote, was Ukraine's provocation in the Kerch Strait the true reason for the cancellation? We have heard the official explanation and take note of it, but is it true? I think the true reason is rooted in the domestic political situation in the U.S., which is really quite a shot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in, in the diplomatic world, basically saying, yeah, we know what President Trump is saying for uh, canceling the meeting with Putin, but we're not buying it. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't think the White House has had any response to that yet. Um, but it does raise it does raise eyebrows. I mean, there is a great deal going back going on back here while he's in Argentina. Obviously, the Michael Cohen news yesterday was huge. Um, and he does still have this crisis at the border that his administration is dealing with with asylum seekers. And so. Um, you know, the president has a number of things on his plate back home that he's dealing with. And um, it, it does sort of raise the question about the p- politics behind that meeting cancellation. Now, you, you've mentioned that how, how confident some of the people in Trump world were about uh, the Michael Cohen situation. Do they really have, have they really figured out what their strategy is going to be when the Democrats take control of, uh, of the House of Representatives? I, I, I can't remember who used the analogy who said, you know, that uh, that that after January, that, you know, starting in January, uh, the Democrats are going to be firing subpoenas like arrows at Agincourt. I thought it was a really <laughs> it was a good, you know, vivid uh, I- image. Is, is the White House, have, have they have they staffed up? Have they geared up? Are they psychologically ready for how this universe changes in January? You know, my colleagues, um, Nancy Cook and Darren Samuelson, had a really great story last week that sort of took a look at the White House Counsel's Office, which will be in charge of fielding these subpoenas, dealing with all of these congressional investigations um, under a Democrat-controlled House. And they do seem to be struggling with bringing on new people Um, sort of creating the team that will go into the next two years to um, handle all of these investigations that they're anticipating. Um, And the other big problem here is that the president's pick to lead the White House counsel now that Don McGahn has left um, is held up in a background uh, clearance issue right now. And so, you know, he can't start assembling his team until he's actually installed in the White House counsel's office himself. So that's sort of holding up things, um, creating a, a, a major issue, if you will, for the for the White House as they um, 
prepare for January and the new Congress to be seated. You know, you and you also in, in, in your piece is sort of double back to where we started really raised an interesting question because uh, you know, the, 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 the Trump era has been defined by, you know, the decision by the cable news networks to carry his rallies live and unedited, you know, probably one of the worst <laughs> journalistic decisions ever. And then, of course, uh, when we used to have daily White House briefings, which we don't have anymore, uh, those were carried wall to wall. The question is, in 2019, whether or not these congressional hearings will be compelling enough to be live television. Because, you know, that, you know, if if the if the rise of Trump was was aided and abetted by all of the live television of his of of his briefings and his uh, his rallies, what will it look like if you have the Michael Cohen show or whether you if you have, you know, three or four congressional hearings with compelling compelling witnesses with everybody, you know, in the in the background, knowing that if you lie to these guys, um, you might be going to prison. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, look, the only reference point I have at this point um, for something that's occurred in the Trump era that has just sort of had all eyes glued to it was the Kavanaugh hearings um, with him and, and Christine Blasey Ford. And I think that if Michael Cohen um, was brought before the Senate Intelligence Committee or the House Intelligence Committee um, next year and it was in an open setting where reporters could be present, it would be aired live on TV, that it would sort of totally trump the uh, the Kavanaugh hearings just in terms of the spectacle that it would be. I mean, this is the president's longtime fixer. It's somebody who has known um, Trump and his family for decades, knows uh, presumably all of the business transactions that he's been involved in, um, any issues with his taxes and um, financial records. I mean, he sort of holds the key to everything that Democrats have said they wanted to look into. And that means that he's going to be the star witness. He's going to be hauled into the Hill, um, I imagine, for not just one, but several hearings over the next few months. And if, you know, again, it, it does it does mean that they would have to be public in order for this to um, be the sort of spectacle that we all expect it to be. Uh, but I, I think that they're eager and hungry to do that with Michael Cohen. Gabby Orr is a White House reporter for Politico. Thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it very much. Thanks, and thank Charlie. you for And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back on Monday and we'll do this all over again.